Hey, are you ready to demonstrate your organization's commitment to data protection and government? And I mean your company, not just you. Boost Brand Trust with AI certification, incorporating principles from industry standards like NIST and the OECD. And you can navigate all of those privacy regulations confidently with TrustArc's robust AI governance solutions. Get a trustee certified privacy seal for your company, signifying organization's commitment to responsible data practices. With trustees' proven methodology over years, you can achieve compliance with AI laws around the world and also enhance your general privacy posture. Secure your brand's competitive advantage with a trusted seal now. Get AI certified today. Visit trustart.com slash AI dash certified. That's trustart.com slash AI dash certified. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustart. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. Welcome back to Serious Privacy and happy Data Protection Day. We took a small break at the start of the year, but are excited to be back for our second season. We won't reveal too much if we say we have some great episodes in store for you already. One of our goals for this year is to invite more scholars to the, to the program to discuss their work. What are the privacy and data protection issues of the future and how should we deal with them? For our season opener, we are very happy to be joined by a special guest, Irish Data Protection Commissioner Helen Dixon. Helen is probably one of the best-known data protection regulators around the world, with her office having the duty to supervise most major tech companies doing business in Europe. And that comes with a lot of public scrutiny and also with some fierce criticism. Today, we talk about her plans for 2021, but of course, we should also look back at some of the major developments in 2020 with the CGEU decision on Schrems 2, as well as the first financial penalty for a U.S. tech company. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So welcome, Helen. We are just so absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. And I know that everyone's going to hate the fact that I'm going to use my favorite saying probably 10 times more than normal on this episode. So unexpected question. Are you ready? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> what? is your favorite piece of clothing? Oh, I would say definitely my pajamas. At the end of a long day of fierce criticism, as Paul said, time to rest and and wipe it all away. So yeah, pajamas, I'll go for. I love it. I love it. Paul, what about you? I think I would actually choose a tie. I know there are not very men left around the world who like ties, but for me, especially when you are in business attire, so when you are wearing a suit, Men typically wear either dark gray or dark blue suits with a white or a blue shirt or a pink shirt if you really go wild. So a tie is the one thing that you can use to express your mood, to express your feelings, to bring some some brightness to a day or some darkness if you don't feel too well. So it's it's for me a way that I can express myself and being stuck at home, I don't wear ties anymore. <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't think I've seen you in a tie, Paul. Only in our Halloween episode that was only trust our ah, internal. <laughs> yes, we ought to release some shots of that because that was pretty cool. I will say you inspired me as to what my favorite piece of clothing was because I was sitting there thinking, do shoes count as clothes? Because shoes are my absolute favorite. But if they're not clothes, I was really racking my brain 
And you reminded me back when I was a nurse and pretty much everyone either wore white uniforms or wore scrubs. And the way that we showed personality were socks. So I have tons and tons of weird and colored and funny, hilarious socks that now that I'm no longer a nurse, nobody cares about my socks but me. (laughs) (laughs) But I see more and more men using socks indeed as an alternative to ties as well. And they're also gifts at the conferences. When you're at conferences and the vendors have all their booths, there's typically at least a couple that are giving away socks. So for the fall, watch out for your pink and blue serious privacy socks. That's right. <laughs> That's in ties. All right, let's go, Paul. What do we have serious for Helen? Well, let's start looking back a little at, at 2020. And, and Helen, if you look back at last year, apart from COVID, what is... How do you look back at 2020? Because a lot has happened, especially in and around your office. Yeah, actually, I look back at it as a year of huge output progress for for our office. Um, Last year was, of course, the second full year of application of the GDPR. Um, And the GDPR, as I'm sure I'm going to say a couple of times today, has to be regarded as a work in progress. It's not going to be an overnight success story. Mm -hmm. So last year, really, I think with the reduction in travel, we found that it was a year of real focus and and a chance for us to move on with outputting uh, in a lot of ways that uh, were difficult to do with all of the travel commitments that we had, particularly to Brussels. So in, in terms of big outputs from last year, Obviously, with the CJU ruling, which was uh, a culmination of the legal proceedings that my office took to the Irish High Court in 2016, but we also significantly published our detailed guidance on how to protect protect children's data under the GDPR. We published that in December, and you recall that resulted from a long consultation that we ran directly with children, but also uh, with adult organizations, with industry, with schools. We also concluded about 6,000 complaints from individuals last year and resolved those complaints. So it's very high volume work. We had a lot of detailed consultation in Ireland where government consulted us on various legislative initiatives, some of them, of course, COVID related. The COVID tracking app was a big project in terms of consultation on that. And we were able to make very positive interventions on that and have good cooperation with the public health authorities in Ireland that developed it. They were very much persuaded by by the idea that it would be a good idea to publish their data protection impact assessment and their source code to build trust around that app. And of course, there was very high take up uh, from adults in Ireland. We also sought in 2020 to really try and improve the supports we offer to data protection officers. Unfortunately, our in-person conference in Dublin was stymied by the pandemic, but we have started a dedicated area on our website. We're trying to populate it with more and more supports for data protection officers. You mentioned, I think, earlier also the first big fine Uh, in respect of Twitter. So we put that decision through Article 60, through the co-decision-making process. That, of course, turned into a much lengthier project than we might have anticipated when we uploaded it last May uh, and didn't ultimately conclude then until December because it went through the dispute resolution process. 
uh, at the EDPB also. And of course, by the very end of the year, we'd also uploaded our draft decision in the case of a WhatsApp investigation around its transparency obligations. Uh, and that is now subject to the co-decision making process. Actually, the deadline for relevant and reasoned objections uh, has just closed on that one. So it, it was a year of big progress and output and, and an interesting year for us to cut down on travel so that we could focus better. And I think certainly the future for Brussels cooperation that you used to be part of when you were part of Article 29 mm-hmm. is that less in-person, uh, more virtual is going to be the way forward. Well, I think that also saves a lot on the budget of the EDPB and indeed, especially on time with DPAs coming from all angles of Europe, sometimes only having two or three flights a week that they can choose from. So having to spend many extra days in Brussels for just the one day meeting. So I can very well appreciate that this saves a lot of time for all of you, even though maybe you can comment on that as well. How efficient is it talking online with all those DPAs around the table? I recall from my days at the working party, indeed, that sometimes there were 60, 65 people around that that table in the meeting room that all at some point wanted to say something. That's right. And I suppose virtually it's almost worse in that there can be up to 100 people uh, in the virtual rooms. It is a challenge. One of the changes in the virtual setup is that we don't have the interpreters. So in some ways, that makes the meetings slightly efficient is the wrong word because the interpreters don't do anything to diminish the efficiency. But I suppose it it creates less complexity in one sense in the meetings. The meetings are a challenge and it's difficult to find the moment to intervene when there are so many people potentially talking over one another. Um, It's an ongoing battle. I I mean, I'm work in progress. I'm not even sure that's a work in progress. I'm sure there are academic studies that uh, can illustrate what the optimum number to have in attendance at a meeting are. Uh, And I doubt the EDPB is is (laughs) anywhere close to that number. (laughs) Conform to the optimal. It's an imperfect process, but I suppose if we believe the goal is harmonization and speaking as one voice and thrashing out these issues, then we have to work with that imperfect system. I can resonate with that because even with just Paul and I and a guest or maybe two guests on here, we all tend to overtalk each other just because we're so passionate about the topic. It calls for some audio, you know, rework that we have to do. But I can't imagine going from three or four that we have the same problem to going to hundred or people. Yes, it, it, it's not ideal. But I suppose the the alternatives are that you could impose very rigid structures. You could impose right. that there is only one nominee, regardless of the broad range of topics that an agenda might canvas. You could nonetheless insist there can only be one attendee per DPA, but that, of course, gives rise to other issues. Because the span of our work is so broad, because there are so many expert subgroups of the EDPB dealing with government issues, financial, social media, you really do need the experts on the topic, ideally uh, speaking at any moment in time. So 
Look, uh, maybe maybe I'll contradict myself and I'll concede that Paul's right. Work in progress. There's probably something that can be done to improve it. I, I, I believe there is. And not all of the issues are around how many speakers there are trying to intervene at a meeting. There are also issues around the organisation of the agenda. I just right. those expert groups of the EDPB. One of the big issues that I've seen in the last year is that when travel was eliminated as an obstacle, one might have thought that those data protection authorities that genuinely struggled to travel from more remote remote parts uh, to Brussels for plenaries or subgroups, that once it was virtual, they might participate more. But actually, what you find is that the expert groups, there can be no more than 10 or 11 DPAs are not all actively participating. Oh, wow. So there's a problem around engagement with the expert groups. And of course, if you don't have the engagement at that level, it makes the plenaries less efficient. Right. Reinventing wheels at the plenary and you're going back to basics again on topics that should have been worked through. So, yeah, let's go for work in progress. Uh, I, I can accept that. I can believe that. We know everyone is probably very curious uh, about several topics when it comes to you. So I'll start with one of the questions, which you probably won't answer, but what the heck, let's go for it. What's next on your agenda? Who are you after? What's your priority? <laughs> Look, I've already told you my favorite uh, item of clothing is that <laughs> nothing off limits, Kay, with you. Um, well, well, actually, that's really publicly available information as to who we're next after, because, of course, we have a series of big tech investigations that are well advanced and which will conclude now over the coming weeks and months. So it is, it's often hard for me to say exactly which decision making process I will finish But I anticipate that there will be a a complaint-based further WhatsApp inquiry, or or sorry, a Facebook inquiry. I should have said the same family, but there are three different complaints that NOYB lodged, one against WhatsApp, one against Instagram, one against Facebook. And it's actually the Facebook one that is the further advanced. I'm in the decision-making process on that one. So I anticipate that one is, is likely uh, to be one that will move to the co-decision-making process over the coming months. Nice. Then we have other inquiries underway, as you know, in relation to lots of other big tech companies, and they're all at different stages of moving through. There's also, uh, let me, yeah, I, I mean, that's probably the most relevant one uh, to mention in terms of near term. Right. And does this mean that you've had to, over the course of GDPR and now virtually as well, had to ramp up the number of personnel in your office? Oh, we we most certainly have. I mean, each year it's been a priority for me uh, around the budget cycle to make the strongest submission in case I can to government for additional budget to continue the recruitment. As I've said many times before, from the starting point at the end of 2014, when I became commissioner and we had fewer than 30 staff uh, to today where we've over 155 staff, and it has to still be regarded as, as a long-term process. We couldn't do a merger acquisition to increase our numbers overnight. We have to do each year handpicking of new experts to come in and 
uh, fill not just our numbers, but really flesh out the expertise that. So actually, we did a significant volume of recruitment this year. And we were happy that we were able to implement a system of conducting not just online interviews, but online virtual tests that we run on all candidates. Uh, and, and so we recruited in over 30 staff uh, this year. Again, lawyers, data protection experts of various types. And um, we've secured additional budget for 2021. We have another 2 million in our pay budget for this year. So we anticipate that we will recruit scores of new staff, uh, in fact, this year. And we've already started planning those campaigns. So that's absolutely essential. We're, we're dealing in a high volume area here. I mentioned earlier, we've resolved over 6,000 complaints last year. We also processed about 7,000 data breach notifications and we engage with each breach notification. We conduct a risk assessment uh, on each and we engage with the controller that notifies us to ensure that any mitigation actions that are needed have been taken. And then we have so many other activities around consultation on legislation by government, the large scale inquiries we're conducting, the work we've pursued, as I said, on children uh, and assessing what those specific protections they merit are and so on. So we need volumes of staff if we're going to progress all of that in parallel. So I guess that is that also goes to show that you are not just Europe's big tech regulator, but you are first and foremost the Irish Data Protection Commissioner dealing with what is happening in Ireland. If you have so many local complaints and so many legislative advices and, and data breaches that are most relevant also to the citizens of Ireland, that, that is a big impact of your work as well. And I think a lot of the vocal critics sometimes seem to forget that is also your priority. Well, it has to be our priority. Our, we are a national supervisory authority under the GDPR. And even though, as you said, in certain circumstances, we are the lead supervisory authority, as it happens for so many of the big platforms, um, it, it's simply not open to me to say, well, well I would will ignore complaints I receive from Ireland because nobody internationally is interested in hearing about them. But also, I think it's worth mentioning that in Ireland, we have a very engaged public with data protection law. Uh, When we've run surveys and even the Eurobarometer surveys that have been run show that there's very high levels of engagement with data protection law in Ireland and very high levels of awareness of the Data Protection Commission as the authority to which individuals can complain. So we're extremely active in Ireland. We're an office that's very well known and that nationally has a very high profile, quite apart from that work that we do with the big tech companies. So yeah, we we have to do it all, no doubt. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. And I referred to it before also at the the opener, but your office has received a a lot of criticism in, in, in the past year, especially where are the decisions, the fines are not high enough, there are not sufficient fines on the international tech companies, the, the, the data transfers have not been immediately blocked. How do you deal with all that criticism? Because, I mean, you're, you're also just a human being, and this, this often is quite personal as well, what I see come by at, in social, online social media. Social media is not friendly. <laughs> 
You you said it, Kay. No, it's certainly not forgiving. I I suppose, like everyone, we have to be open to constructive criticism and, and genuine feedback. So we tend to avoid looking at what trolls are saying or what those that are commentating from a position where they really have no knowledge of, of, of what they're talking. In terms of the criticism, I think sometimes when we talk about the criticism directed at the Irish DPC, we also forget to mention that we also receive a lot of praise and that sometimes the criticism is coming from uh, very limited quarters. So, for example, I I was thinking about actually in December, some of the coverage of uh, our Twitter decision and the process and the publication of the Article 65. And it was fascinating to see some journalists attempt to spin what had happened as a majority of DPAs opposed the Irish DPC decision. And of course, if you're any good at maths, even if you did count 11 objections out of 27, that wouldn't be a majority. And of course, the fact that the Article 65 process found that the majority of the objections did not meet the definition in Article 424 as relevant and reasoned would lead you to actually say a very small minority of data protection authorities objected. So there's undoubtedly a spin put on things which which can then get people very riled up. Equally, just to take another example of the type of reporting you might be referring to, and this isn't directly any criticism of the Irish DPC, but I don't know whether both of you saw a lot of the coverage that emerged after Advocate General Bobek's recent opinion uh, in relation to the Belgian DPA versus Mm -hmm. Facebook. The headlines blazed that all EU DPAs, in brackets, because the Irish DPC is so slow, can now handle complaints in respect of multinationals. And of course, the Advocate General said entirely the opposite, if you read the opinion. And yet that was the headline in so many places. So I think, look, criticism isn't nice. Unwarranted criticism isn't isn't nice. But we have to sift through what's the reality and and what isn't. And even today, I've been seeing headlines around how the Italian DPA has launched an urgency procedure in respect of TikTok because of unease at the pace at which the Irish DPC works. Oh, my goodness, that couldn't be accurate in terms of what has gone on in the background in in respect of TikTok. So uh, some of it, we read it and we just say, look, you know, we could employ 40 people full time every day trying to correct what the media is writing. Uh, And and some things we do try to correct, but some of it we just have to Mm -hmm. let it wash through. I I think at the end of the day, what, what we say to ourselves is, We'll answer our critics with what we produce. And we're producing, we've produced the Twitter, the WhatsApp is now in co-decision. We've taken action on transfers. There's more coming in the pipeline uh, every week. And, and that's what's going to speak for us at the end of the day. And your decisions are the first one that have actually gone through the co-decision and also the the appeals procedure. The appeals procedure is not the right word, but to the, the reasons objection procedure. Yours are the first one, right? 
That's right. That was the first Article 65 dispute resolution mechanism. And so it, it really was a big learning, I would say, for the EGPB. It, it wasn't run efficiently. I struggled with, with how a lot of it was organised because, for example, it was clear that many of the objections weren't relevant and reasoned by reference to the definition and yet a huge merits examination of the objections was engaged with, despite the fact that ultimately they had to be rejected uh, as legitimate objections. So mm-hmm. all of that just wastes time uh, and is not efficient. So I think there's been learning uh, and hopefully if it arises again, we'll move through it more swiftly. I guess for us pundits on the sideline, it's it's actually helpful that it has been done because it also gives a very good insight into into the process and the considerations that were before the board and that were discussed. So yes, it is it is certainly delayed any decisions, but I think for the outside world trying to understand what is going on, to be that transparent about all the objections that were raised and how they were not relevant and reasoned is very valuable as well. I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I, I think there's huge learning in it. And I hope lots more people will actually read the Article 65 decision and more importantly, will read the decision itself in the Twitter case. I think that's been a little bit surprising to us that there has been very little written about the actual decision mm-hmm. and what it has clarified in terms of documenting a breach and how it must be distinguished from an incident tracking that it must be actually documenting for the purposes of GDPR the personal data breach and and the analysis under um, when the controller became aware there's been very little written about the actual decision. I've no doubt DPOs and data protection professionals everywhere have read it and have taken lessons from it but of course it's not it's not what generates the headlines. <laughs> Well, if they haven't say, yet, they should start reading because, indeed, yeah. it is very valuable information on if you are ever confronted with a breach, what steps to take and what to take into account because you do provide a, a lot of detail. And I recall from all the discussions, everybody screaming that the fine was too low. But if you look at what the fine was actually for, I think it is a pretty serious fine. And the fine was not for not having all the all the security defined was actually directed, if I understood it correctly, at the breach notification process and not at all the underlying problems that might be there as well. Of course. And I think some of those that, that commentate, I think you're right, it, it is a proportionate fine. But some of those that commentate think the aim of the exercise is it's Twitter, get them. They mm-hmm. realize that's not. <laughs> I do understand that. <laughs> <laughs> that's not actually the aim of the exercise. It's scope and inquiry, show in a reasoned way that there are infringements and apply a proportionate fine. But, but again, that kind of nuance does get lost at times. I kind of think of it as uh, the old Westerns, you're not our hired hitter. <laughs> you're not the person we're going to call in to go after the bad guy and get paid a bounty for. So I love it. But I also wouldn't guarantee that all privacy professionals have even looked at the headline because with GDPR and all the regulations that have been passed in the past few years, there's 
tens of thousands of new privacy people, many of whom have absolutely no knowledge of privacy when they take on the role. And so they may not know that they should be looking at things like this beyond the headline to go and actually learn what might be instructive in their programs. So we do have a lot of privacy people. So one thing I want to go back and I want to catch a baseline because we have found out that we do have fans at all different levels of experience and some are not in privacy. Some are cybersecurity, information security professionals. Why is Ireland handling all the big tech cases? So the reason we are is that uh, the EU Commission, and Paul will know this well because he lived through the history of it, the EU Commission, when it proposed a new law to replace the existing 1995 directive that regulated data protection, the EU considered that it wanted to implement a one-stop shop for multinationals because the system under the previous 1995 directive was that multinationals had to comply with the laws of every member state and they had to go around and talk to every regulator. And they sometimes found, because of the fragmented nature of transposition of that old directive, that there was somewhat contradictory uh, approaches taken by data protection authorities So the idea of the one-stop shop was to be in ease of multinationals, to allow it have, as it's called in the GDPR, their sole interlocutor, a lead supervisory authority uh, that would supervise those multinationals uh, and lead on investigations. And the reason why there are so many multinational and big tech companies in Ireland is, of course, because we have for the longest time been a small open economy in Europe. Uh, Long before there was data protection and personal data, we had the likes of Intel investing in Ireland and Dell and and manufacturing for IT and, of course, pharma. It's an English-speaking country. It has one of the youngest and most highly educated populations in the EU. It has a common law system and is now actually the only common law country uh, left in the EU. So it is a common law jurisdiction similar to the US. And of course, it has a favorable tax regime for, for US companies that locate here. So there are lots and lots of reasons as to why it's been a good country uh, for US multinationals of all types, pharma, as well as as big tech uh, to locate and roll in then the GDPR with the one-stop shop. Uh, and it amounts to a lot of work for the Irish Data Protection Authority. And it does. And to put this in context of people in the the U.S. who might not understand Ireland's mighty, mighty size, tiny but fierce, Arizona is four times bigger than Ireland and has over one million more people. And so to put that in context as the load of work that you're facing as the Data Protection Authority in Ireland, that's a lot. That's a lot. A lot of work. It, It is a huge amount of work. Uh, We take the responsibility seriously. We work extremely hard as a team. And I think we're making progress. But I think it also has to be understood that it is generally ex-post enforcement that's involved in data protection. We're always running after the issues anyway. Uh, And I suppose there's no ex-ante licensing of any type in the Mm -hmm. area. So you're always discovering the problems uh, after the fact And uh, then I think that very broad-based role we have where we're handling complaints from individuals as well as doing the systemic type supervision and investigation 
does make it a challenge. The, the other thing that's interesting for a US audience is that, of course, EU data protection law regulates every sector. So often when there's talk about uh, the potential for uh, a federal US privacy law, it would be intended to regulate only commercial contexts. But of course, in, in the EU, we regulate the church and its personal data process, voluntary organizations, universities, schools, uh, retail, you name Everything. it, and it's, it's covered. So the range... Well, and individuals, because I forget what it was Paul and I were talking about, but there are individuals who have received fines. I don't know if out of Ireland, I don't bring that to mind, but there are individuals... No, that was in Belgium. Yeah, that have received fines for violating data protection. That's right. And, and we have recently issued guidance on the issue of domestic CCTV, just like in Belgium. That's a really significant source of complaints to our office. Individuals who are really oh, upset bet. with their next door neighbor. They've put up cameras that are trained into the neighbor's <laughs> property. Yes. So we've actually cited that Belgian case as this is what we'll have to do next. Oh, I love it. There isn't compliance. I mean, the solution to it, of course, is that householders need to train the cameras within the perimeter of their own property. And then they fall. They don't fall inside data protection law and the GDPR. but. Any complaints about drones? Very few, actually, about drones. Uh, That's a big one here in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, I noticed uh, around the neighborhood, a few more people certainly got them for Christmas because they're <laughs> uh, att attempting to launch them. So give 30 more days and you might have complaints about drones. <laughs> 30 more days than I might have. I might have to lodge a complaint myself. But no, I, I, I think maybe there aren't as many in use we have investigated the use of drones, but specifically by a local authority, so a local government body. But in terms of individuals, not yet. One of the I topics that is top of mind for almost every data protection professional around the world at the moment is how are we going to solve international transfers? So how are we going to solve it? <laughs> well, well I give, give us the skinny here. <laughs> I suppose for those individuals that are asking themselves that the answer is they're not going to solve it because it's probably not within the gift of most of us and even enforcers and regulators uh, like my office. But of course, we can apply pressure by attempting to give effect to the law as we understand it and, and to the CJU judgment. It, it's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, I think uh, the policy and lawmakers simply need to engage, to study carefully the judgments of the CJU on, on this issue and around data retention, around necessity and proportionality. Um, and and negotiate robust solutions that uh, are going to stand up to to legal scrutiny. I think the problem with this question is there's no there's no shortcut answer to it. The EU has set the bar high, and therefore any third countries that are making money through processing EU personal data are are, are going to have to comply with the high bar. And I think a lot of that talk about EU isolating itself and uh, becoming a data island, I, I really don't think that is how it will transpire. It's a massive consumer market mm -hmm. globally and, and people want to do business and will continue to do business here.
So it's going to have to be a tough negotiation process between policy and lawmakers and uh, a a lot of honest conversations. US isn't the only conversation. The UK is also... Dare we mention the B word? No, we're not (laughs) going to mention the B word. No, it's not. But I will say that here in the US, I was very excited to say that our new administration appointed Christopher Hoff to lead the negotiations. And he has a lot of experience in the international transfers between the EU and the US and negotiating. So I was excited for that one. Um, Hoping that's going to get us. I I think so. And the fact that it's such an early appointment really does an awareness that this is a very, very significant problem and, and an awareness that it needs to be tackled soon, I think. So, yeah, that's good news. Yeah, we're already seeing the promise we were all hoping for with, you know, my good buddy, ha ha ha, Kamala Harris, VP. I'm very hopeful for that. So we had one last question we wanted to have before we wrapped up and we could ask you 50,000 more questions, probably. Paul, would you like to ask? Sure, because we had a brief discussion in preparation of today's episode also within our team. And one of our colleagues said she would be interested to hear your thoughts on the role of accountability and ethics in data protection going forward. So a very small question. The role of accountability is is the one that I will address because that is the requirement under the GDPR. And ethics is a whole other topic. and it, it, it's it's a topic that I have stated before. We don't even reach when when we don't even implement the basics around accountability and and the legal analysis that's required under the GDPR. So I think accountability has um, a fundamental role under the GDPR because Kay talked earlier about the fact that there are lots of new data protection officers. There are lots of new data protection professionals that are really struggling now to come up to speed and and to learn all about data protection law and to study the case law that does exist on it. And what we can see on an ongoing basis, uh, and, and even with some of the implementations around COVID last year, is that people are still making the mistake of thinking there's a book they can open or a website they can look at our podcast, they can listen to, and they will find the silver bullet. The answer will be there. And of course, it, it isn't ever there. It's case by case legal analysis in every scenario that is required. And so the job of data protection professionals and those acting as critical friends within organizations is to encourage that first principles analysis around any problem. The data protection impact assessment provides a structure in which to do that and to build in the accountability around the decision-making, around the assessment of the risks and how those risks are going to be mitigated in terms of any implementation, how data protection by design is going to be incorporated and so on. So if you're not accountable, you're not really considering that you have obligations under GDPR Uh, You're not really doing the analysis. You may be getting away with it by taking that approach of cut and paste answers from here and there. But sooner or later, you're going to come across a a scenario that requires you to go back to first principles. And it's a way of thinking and it's a discipline and a training. And and we've seen organizations, particularly that engaged with us in the run-up to the GDPR coming into application, that put in the most comprehensive data protection programs. 
and really did both inspire their boards to take a more top-down interest, but really implemented a bottom-up approach within their organizations where business units became engaged and understood it isn't the problem of the legal team or the data protection office. It has to be implemented and integrated into every business unit. So it's core, it's central, it's unavoidable. It's where it's at. I love it. I just can't say enough thank yous about the information you've given. I think there are a lot of people who are going to find it fascinating to listen to the questions that we asked, but more importantly, the answers that you gave. Uh, Was there anything that when we invited you to come on the show that you wanted to make sure you had a chance to share that you have not had an opportunity to? No, I'm delighted uh, to to have been asked to join. I've I've listened to your podcast several times and and always find it enlightening. I, I think really the message Thank I would you. want to give out really reflects the last answer that I gave. Nobody knows all the answers. Data protection authorities don't know all the answers. We are not uh, sitting in judgment where we can look up that book and and find the answer and tell everyone what they did wrong. There's very little case law in this area. We appreciate all the efforts and the best efforts that are being made to comply. It's a work in progress. And uh, (laughs) we we want to thank all stakeholders for the really constructive engagement that they have with our office on an ongoing basis. Thank you very much. much. You're very welcome. And with that, we wrap up the first episode of season two of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us, rate and review us in your favorite podcast application. And should you have any questions or suggestions, especially if you would like to suggest a guest or be a guest on the program, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at truststart.com or via Twitter at, at podcastprivacy, at least as long as we are still allowed to use Twitter here in the <laughs> European Union. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Thank you for being with us. Happy Data Protection Day. Happy Data Privacy Day if you are outside of Europe. And we look forward to welcome you back early February on Tuesdays, as usual, for episode two of season two. Thank you for now. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Okay, did you hear that the Trust Arc Trust Center is revolutionizing the way businesses manage trust? I did. And with the Trust Center, achieving customer trust is no longer a months-long process. It can be just days. Yeah. Have you been in a situation where a customer wanted information and you need to scramble to find everything? Just imagine all of that was at hand in one central hub with info on privacy, legal, security, compliance, system availability. Yeah, you can lower your legal, regulatory, and reputational risk with instant updates and speed up your sales cycle with private and public document sharing. Trust Center solves the problem of red tape and dependencies, ensuring your trust and safety information is accurate, compliant, and available. And you know the best part? You'll save time and cost. How often have you gone to multiple departments and it's taken weeks so you can remove bottlenecks and effortlessly streamline your efforts? Trust Center, trust becomes your key differentiator in today's digital economy. 
experienced enhanced customer trust, operational speed, and efficiency while enjoying comprehensive coverage for diverse stakeholders. So why wait? Start streamlining trust management with TrustArc's Trust Center. Visit TrustArc.com slash more dash trust. That is TrustArc.com slash more dash trust. There's a lot of trust in that. A lot of trust.